Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Chris Jackson. Fred, what are we talking about today? Well, I, I'm not giving you much heads up on this stuff. Sorry no, you're not. No, no, all no. I know is it's theoretical, which is means we can never be proven wrong. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Well, there's that. There's a benefit to this one. But uh, <laughs> one of the suggestions was... Um, I don't. I didn't gather whether this was if you're going to ask the question of a candidate, and I've been asked a question much like this once, or if you're asked this question, how how should you respond? What's the right way to respond? And it, there might not be a right answer. So here's here's the idea. So uh, you get asked, or you're asking, describe your approach you would take to estimate the reliability of a new product that has some new technology and will be manufactured in a new facility. Oh. So it's one of those that 20 minutes might not do as good, but nah. it's almost right up there with, so tell us about yourself. <laughs> I always love that question. But uh, well, so how would you start with this one? Well, I mean, you... you you, you can't model everything to the nth degree. So, I mean, in principle, what I would like to do is is, is understand, I think I used this term in the previous conversation, understand the things that are going to keep you up at night. So what are the things that are the most important based on your current understanding of, of the state of the art? Um, and then those are the things that you need to then focus on in terms of uh, predicting system reliability moving forward. Uh, FAMIA is a good tool for that to work out using essentially corporate knowledge and, and you know this and there's lots of other tools out there fault tree analysis can be used as well to work out okay of these components and what's in their background and everything else what what is it that's going to essentially keep us up at night what do we think the highest risk is and those are the things that you want to focus your modeling analysis and testing efforts on um and things that are less important to reliability characteristics, they're the ones that you can uh, rely on uh, expert judgment or things like that to then push the back. But then you sort of you need to prioritize your your learning efforts is how I'd summarize yep. my, my initial response. So I would add to that is that it's also, well, what are the major decisions that the team needs to make? What what are the, True. I mean, at some point you're going to say, is it good enough to ship? Well, what's the criteria? What is it that mm -hmm. we have to have prepared to answer that question or inform that question or that decision? And, or it's like the new technology. Well, we're not really sure if it's going to last the 10 years that we needed to. Well, okay. Well, that's a good question. How about we sort that out? What, you know, and then dive into that some more. So it's, I, I think it's, what are the risks is a, you got to prioritize. You can't like you said, can't model and characterize everything, and you really don't need to. If the majority of the product is replicate of a previous product, you probably have some pretty good information about the, how most of the product works. So of, oftentimes it's very natural to focus on the what's new, the new technology and the new facility, and a process FMEA with a new facility makes sense. And um run it for four years to see how well it works was probably not a good answer for most product production lines. Um, 
but the the idea is is prioritize, but also make sure you're doing stuff that helps people inform their decision making. Is it ready to ship? It might be one of them. Is this new technology adequate for our application and use conditions? Well, what else is changing? And then I would add a, a third tangent to it is, well, from the existing technology that's in this product and our history of working with this stuff, what needs improvement? What would give us more cushion uh, so that new technology has more room to do its thing? Because it, it's more uncertain for up until we've sorted out. And so... What do we know from the past? And the FMEA is a place to capture a lot of that. But also, what decisions do we need to make? And what information is adequate to help inform those decisions, given budget, timeline, everything else we got? And then then third is prioritize. Where where are the risks? So I I kind of approach it in those three mechanisms. So So, so, so those three mechanisms again, the last one ending with prioritizing based on risk? It's a prioritize decisions and um, I forgot the third one. I was on a roll there. I just. I, you were. You were killing it. Just wanted to make yeah, sure yeah. I could make sure I ruined it. Um, you're welcome. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I had, you know, I actually had a, a similar question. It was at a, a large consumer product company uh, years and years ago. And I was, work, I was working at HP at the time. And I got an interview with what looked like a really cool job and a position in this company. And the uh, project manager who was running this big project um, interviewed me to be the reliability engineer on the project and asked me, so Mm -hmm. what would your approach be? You know, he asked it basically that way. And he says, well, I talked to the design engineers, you know, and the mechanical, electrical and software folks and pretty much what we just talked about. And he goes, oh, no, 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 you're going to be allowed to talk to them. And I I know I've told this story before. And I I got up and said, well, I'm not going to waste your time anymore. You're doomed to failure. (laughs) And so I left. Yep. (laughs) And there's nothing you can do. Um, But uh, the other thing is uh, we always talk about risk in terms of negative consequences and bad things. There might be opportunities to improve as well. If you're moving Mm -hmm. to a brand new um, manufacturer or supplier, if you're moving to brand new components, there may be scope for you to improve reliability or at the very least take those improvements or those scopes to, scope to do things better as to mitigate some of the uncertainties, which are quite understandable when you mm-hmm. change the status quo. Yeah. Um, so there's always that issue, that element to explore. Well, I, I like that idea is because it's, if you're going to a new facility with a new team, it's, you could start f- fresh with the concepts of con- control charts, for example, if that's not been something mm. that's commonly used, let's introduce right. techniques and processes and measurement systems that upskills that, that line so that it's more, I won't, my, I, every time I think of this phrase, it makes me giggle a little bit for my junior high English teacher. It just makes it more better. More better. Yeah. More better. Well, I don't know where I mean, that that's, phrase comes it, from. It, it's, not from the Oxford Dictionary, but uh, um, <laughs> but the thing is, you raise a really good point, actually. Maybe we, we glossed over that one a little bit too quickly, but what, it's really difficult to change an embedded relationship. So if you've been using a supplier for five years, for example, and all of a sudden you turn up and say, now we're going to do con- control charts, there's a bit of sedentary inertia there, which is very human, especially if people don't understand what control charts are and it comes across as sort of a... Oh, this this is simply a um, 
a new mandate, uh, you know, and a new directive. And yeah, exactly. He's never, someone who's never done this in the no no real world um, expertise, what, what whatever you want to call it. Um, but the there's an opportunity if you if you are starting a relationship, say, hey, just so by the way, this is how we roll. We want you to use um, we want to have want you to use PCI and SPC. We like to have good feedback and transparency between the between the control charts and, and, and our specification limits, so we're within within tolerances and things like that. I mean, you won't, doesn't, won't always guarantee a, a mature, good response. Can't can't do that. But there is a, I'd argue, a much better chance of you getting off on the right foot, so to speak, and saying, well, this is how we're going to do things now. So never waste an opportunity to to uh, to make your first impression amazing. And then once you do that. Then, uh, as opposed to the scenario where you've been dealing with a supplier for five years, now you're saying they're going to do SPC and PCA. Um, they're not going to say, "Well, what are we doing wrong? What, are we not good enough for you anymore?" No, no. If it's from the start, it's not personal. It's not linked to. And, and this applies whether it's with this, you know, contract manufacturer you're working with, you're shifting to a new element a new supplier or even a new facility let's say they're building a a, a line for you and bringing on right. and training people it's an investment not just in the equipment it's an investment in the people um the other team that we uh, is often overlooked from a design perspective is what about the maintenance of that equipment you know if we're right. bringing up a production line we want it to work and we want it to not damage the product or create variability in it and part of preventative maintenance, predictive maintenance, and, and how well the team is is conducting maintenance to really solve problems and not have them repeat or bandage and duct tape this stuff. That's another thing that you can invest in to, to improve right. the production of your facility, which affects the reliability. I, and I th this, this follows on from one of our previous podcasts, which is obviously fresh in our memories, but maybe not fresh in all our listeners' memories. But it, it again, the questions we tend to get asked are there's a premise from the people asking the question that part of the answer is going to involve testing or six steps and you're going to be okay or this standard. You do this standard and you, you're 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 uh, you're fine or you use the Arrhenius or you use that. Um, the the in terms of the intent of the question, which is how do we make sure that something is still reliable? I'm paraphrasing mm -hmm. when we change from one one status quo to another is, well, how do, you, how do you make sure, not how does your organization, how do you make sure that the things aren't going to break that uh, would cause these failures? And it's not necessarily um, testing, it's not necessarily compliance, is how are you going to actually come to, uh, really take the time to understand how your product's going to fail so you can then perhaps liaise with your supplier and say, hey, here are the top four critical to quality tolerances for for your uh, for this thing you're manufacturing and we want again we want to really work with you on this and um if you again if you know what it is that's going to likely be defective if uh, a manufacturer or supplier drops a ball then you potentially have a really good line item for your incoming inspection checklist um as opposed to simply just sort of admiring whatever happens you might be proactively controlling what it what 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 will happen, which is, a, again, a much better way of generating that thing called confidence. Yeah. And it starts at concept. If soon, the earlier you get in on the team and working with your, your, your design engineers, the production engineers, the whole team is understanding 
the risk and all those parts we talked about earlier, it, that starts well before you even decide if and when you're going to do any testing. It's it's not like you roll out, well, here's the five things we're going to do. Halt 16 times, and then we're going to do uh, this test and this test, and we'll do these production tests, and we'll do this and this test, and and we'll we'll test the daylights out of it. You'll get lots of data. All right? Why is always my question. <laughs> is any of that information actually needed for anything? And, oh, it, it just bothered the daylights out of me. This one team just thought... You know, we're going to manage production by having him test, you know, some percentage of products every week. And we're going to do this and that and everything. And, and it was basically a repeat of the qualification test that they used themselves to figure out, yeah, we're, we're, we think we got everything covered and we're done. Right. And they would every week repeat it while they went into production. And I was like, why? And, and then they never looked at the data. That was the crowning moment of the whole thing. It was like... <laughs> It's just, but it's always, and it doesn't matter whether you're running a test or doing an FMEA, it's got to have a reason to be done. It costs money. Mm -hmm. It takes time. It it takes energy and resources and brain power to accomplish. If you're going to do a model, uh, say a simple block diagram, why? Where's it going to be used and who's going to, who needs the output from it? And how is it going to be implemented? You know, those kind of things. It's, if it's not clear from the right from the you know initiation of of a plan, uh, you're sunk. And so the approach is, as we outlined already, is you got to understand it. And we didn't start. Neither one of us started, Chris. With well, you got to run this halt test. You got to run this test. You got to run that test. You got to make sure it works in in low atmosphere with high radiation um, in sat in orbit. This as well as products handheld phone. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be in yep. orbit very often. Well, you got to run that test. It's a really good test. I like that test. It's my favorite test. Oh. <laughs> I mean, there's a couple of tests that are quite useful, but again, they usually come after you worked out what the weak points are. So you're targeting something that is uh, based on critical thinking. Yeah. Um, which is one of the things that a lot of people try to avoid when it comes to reliability. And that's not a it's not a joke. <laughs> Critical thinking can be challenging or intimidating when it comes to reliability. So we just want to get a test because we've outsourced a critical thinking to the person who came up with the test. Mm -hmm. Or which, a standard, yeah. You're right, which is unfortunate because that standard was written with no knowledge of your amazing new product. And new technology and, and what are the risks and what do you already know from your previous ones and all kinds mm -hmm. of good stuff. But it's, so if, now if you ask this question to somebody you're trying to hire as a reliability engineer um, and they, and they know, don't know a whole lot about your product. So they're kind of caught generic. I mean, and we painted a picture if they start with, oh, we just test it. We'll set up a whole bank of tests at the end of the deal. It's kind of not what you and I are recommending. So the, the person asking the question would come, hmm, well, how do you know which tests to run? It would be a good follow-up question. Uh, you give them a, a chance to recover for themselves. Um, but it's also likewise if they say, well, I need to understand the risk. I need to understand all this stuff and everything else. And like, then you throw them a, a loop and say, well, we're going to start production next week. How quickly can you do that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, that there. 
the reality of the local constraints is probably another factor to consider. You know, is this a high volume consumer product that has a six months from concept to production? Uh, or is it a brand new platform that we've got five years and $3 billion to sort out and it must work, you know, kind of thing. Um, Hopefully in an interview situation, you got to just an idea of what's the nature of the industry or product that you're dealing with. So you can, uh, but the local constraints of budgets and timing and, and, and capabilities, resources available all matter also. Right. But then it comes back to the decision because, okay, if you want to talk budgets and constraints, then when does a decision now become null and void because you've waited too long to, to make it? Yep. which is what the schedule is all about yep. realistically. Yep. Um, and so that then really helps crystallize, you know, if you, the hypothetical answer, say, well, we've only got three weeks before we launch. What are you going to do? Say, well, is the decision that we're going to hypothetically inform based in this testing, this decision needed make, made a month ago? Well, if that's the case, then let's do nothing. We're done. Yeah, we're done. Let's go make production get started cleanly, you know? Let's go work on that. Right, and... We've been in those in, in environments where you, essentially we have smart people on one side of the table and they will in the one conversation say, yeah, it's too late to change anything now, but what can we test for? And you go, you clearly want to be able to say you've tested it just for your own perverted concept of confidence. That's, that's <laughs> Not a good opening from. line, yeah, but yeah, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, but um, I mean, you're you're talking about this in the context of that job interview. Um, but I think again, if you're having that job interview, presumably you're not interviewing for a job where the problem is sitting right on your desk when you get there in the next half hour. So it's more of a hypothetical, less emotionally charged situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I would stick to the physics. The other reason I say stick to the physics is because if you're walking into an organization which requires you to do reliability engineering activities just so other people feel good about going through the process, you might not want to accept that job even if they offer it to you. Someone's someone's going to be crying sooner rather than later. It could be you. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, yeah, that's exactly my point of that story is this said, well, you're not going to, you can't talk to the design, development team. That's not allowed. You're, you're the reliability guy. And I, says, I think there's a misunderstanding of what that means. <laughs> so, you know, so I, but it's, it's, what is your role to, um, to influence people to understand where the risks are and so on. And if you're, if you're being hired just to run the test lab, well, then you're being hired just to run the test lab. That's different than being a reliability engineer to bring a new product to market. Right. You're the security blanket. Well, even, yeah. But is my question with that would be, uh, is there a team that's working with the development team to understand what you need to test? How is that working? What What are their expectations for the test lab to be able to do? And how quick do we need to turn things around? What's... You know, how, how does that work? We, we don't just, and I ran into that one time. There's a large company in telecommunications that did, they did a halt test on one product. This is a, let's see how that works. And it went really well. They learned so much stuff. So some senior VP said, well, let's buy 50 of these machines and every prototype 
cycle for every product development team has to send two samples to get hull tested. Every one of them. And with 50 chambers and all kinds of people running it, they didn't have enough capacity to test everything. So everything got limited to two hours to a fixed profile. Oh, geez. Yeah. And they kind of lost the point of what they were expecting to get out of this thing. The first one they did went really, really well. They had, you know, they went to a local lab that does a lot of halt testing and they had really good uh, procedures to extract as much information out of the product as they could. But when they went to a fixed profile and only two hours, they earned almost nothing. And then they mm-hmm. argued and complained that, well, just because it failed there doesn't mean that's a bad design. So we're going to ignore those results that became. Well, bad. it's yeah, so the, <laughs> the intent was lost. Yeah. That often happens. I mean, you'll see uh, you'll see organizations who, for example, had a really good experience with an activity like a FAMIA mm-hmm. and they go, wow, this is cool. This is going to be institutionalized, but it then quickly devolves into a box ticking uh, activity where uh, someone reviews a familiar worksheet, which potentially was completed by the most junior engineer because that product line manager doesn't really see the value in familiars. And when it comes to auditing familiars, the only thing you can do is essentially look at a big Excel spreadsheet. So. Mm-hmm. You can't make any reasonable uh, deductions about the quality of the conversation that led up to it. Um, yeah. Now, it, there's all kinds of pitfalls. And that brings up one last point to, is the answer to this question is, well, what's the current culture? You know, it's right. Is it a checklist thing? And do you want to change that? Is it you run nothing but tests, but you're finding that not to be effective or caught, you know, time it's too costly and it's not giving you good information do you want to change it um i'd be asking a whole bunch of questions right back (laughs) real quick well again it's just if you if you get that hypothetical question okay you've got three months to project product launch and what are you going to do you go you know one of the more maybe internal questions you might ask yourself is who the hell waits till three weeks before we launch before you start thinking about this (laughs) <laughs> Again, it right. goes back to you uh, walking out of uh, walking out, of, out of that job interview. To be honest, I'll be more inclined to be a bit more overt in my. I mean, because again, if I'm going, if I'm not, if one of my intentions for this hypothetical job interview is to make sure that we're a good fit, not just me for them, them for me, but me for them, mm-hmm. then I'm looking at these guys and trying to work out if I'm going to enjoy working for these guys. So if they say, well, you've got three weeks before the product launches, uh, go. And I go, and right, snap right back at them. Well, why would you wait till three weeks before the product launch to get to get me involved? The um, supernatural being I use to represent that scenario in my courses <laughs> is the reliability fairy, where you, there's this <laughs> expectation that you can somehow sprinkle reliability fairy dust onto essentially a completely designed product and make it better. Um, oh, we should sell that. Pro- we should sell that. Little sell bottle, it. little bottles of glitter. In- yeah, it's right. <laughs> uh, but, it, it, and you, you might be surprised. There's, there's companies which are changing and evolving all the time. In fact, you're saying, hey, look, if you're going to wait till three weeks before you let me loose on this, uh, it's not going to work. It's, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you because... If you if this is how long you waited for me to get involved, then chances are reliability hasn't been a priority. So I can't I can't fix that based on the design which has already been done. Yeah, 
Yeah. They, you might be surprised. The employer might say, well, that's a really good answer. It was not a trick question, but we're trying to see what you'd think. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd hire that person. <laughs> yeah, I'd hire that person too. That, is, that works. So there's, for sim- what seemingly is a simple question, there's, and, we, and at first I thought, yeah, we were into this about five minutes, and I thought, oh, I think we just answered all of this. Uh, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> so <laughs> came up with a couple more points, and I'm glad we did because the culture uh, matters yeah. for all kinds of reasons. Even if you're in the organization and you're getting ready to run a new product with a new technology, the culture of how people go about doing their business and making decisions matters. And is it need mm-hmm. changing or not? And that's a different challenge than just running a test by far, even if it is the right test that get the right information. But if nobody wants to ever see it, well, then what's the point? But I digress. So, you know, if you're in a situation where you're working with a product or you're trying to hire somebody or something like that, would you run this question by them and, and see what they say? And what, characteristics would you be looking for in, in an answer to something like this? You know, what, what should we do? And, and, but you could also ask yourself this question, are you doing what you think you should be doing? And if not, why? Um, and if you got questions or ideas or suggestions, uh, stuff like that, let us know, head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash S O R. And Chris and I and the other hosts are available through LinkedIn and our about pages. Plenty of ways for you to fire over a question or a suggestion or an idea for us for future shows. And besides that, we'll get you an answer back. If you've got a question, we'll, we'll comment on it and hopefully get you moving in a productive way. So you don't have to wait for the show to, to come out. <laughs> so, all good, Chris. Thanks for jumping on unknowingly uh, to uh, another question here, which this is a, and then we had a good conversation about it. So, thanks a lot, Chris. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. All right, talk to you later. See you. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.